Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Noting the, quote, cruelty of the Trump administration's family separation policy, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said yesterday that the Biden administration will seek to reunite some migrant children still separated from their parents in the United States, where they may be allowed to stay. The pledge comes as officials try to overhaul the nation's border policies, including undoing Trump's so-called Remain in Mexico policy for people seeking asylum. We'll look at the impact of these changes and how officials plan to handle an uptick of unaccompanied minors headed to the border. Forum is next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We look this hour at what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, beginning with people seeking asylum who've been waiting months in encampments in Mexico to have their claims processed. The Biden administration is now allowing them to wait in the U.S., and about two dozen people seeking asylum began entering San Diego from Tijuana a couple of weeks ago. Last Thursday in Texas, asylum seekers who've been waiting at an encampment in Matamoros, Mexico, began entering that state. Many had been at the encampment for months, others years, under what's known as the Trump administration's migrant protection protocols, which forced them to remain in Mexico while their asylum claims were being processed. Joining me now, reporter Sandra Sanchez, who's been reporting from the Texas border and was there when migrant families began to arrive in Brownsville, Texas. Sandra Sanchez is South Texas correspondent for Border Report. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. First, describe what you saw as migrant families began to arrive in Brownsville. Right. Keep in mind that this refugee camp is located a a stone's throw across the Rio Grande from the city of Brownsville. Um, You can stand in the camp and see the U.S. shore, but they have not been able to cross. Some have been there since July of 2019. So they literally walked them across the Gateway International Bridge. That's why this camp founded there because they wanted to be right next to the International Bridge and, and with the chance of crossing. Walked them over and then put them on a charter bus and drove them about four blocks to the Brownsville bus station. And when the first migrants got off the bus led by Sister Norma Pimentel, um, she is a well-known figure here. She heads the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. There were cheers and hugs and uh, lots of people throwing their hands in the air, praising God, 
um, holding signs, um, just you know, hugging one another. It was was really a jubilant atmosphere that for so many um, they've waited for almost two years to happen. What were the conditions like in the encampment? Yeah, they were awful. I went several times prior to the COVID pandemic. Um, after the crisis, the COVID uh, pandemic began, they sealed off the camp with a fence and did not allow journalists or anyone to enter except volunteers who had identification by the INM, which is the Mexican immigration officials. But prior to that, I witnessed um, mud that was so thick that literally I lost shoes. Uh, my shoes would get stuck in the mud, even big, thick boots. Um, there were lots of snakes um, mm. at it, dusk, a uh, whole bunch of cockroaches would just swarm the area. It was so hot, well over 100, 110 degrees for many, many, many months. And then last week, as we all know, Texas and the Rio Grande Valley saw this unprecedented Arctic deep freeze hit the area. And Sister Norma posted video from the camp showing children just screaming from frostbite and hypothermia, uh, their extremities frozen, um, just really extreme conditions. And for all these many months and almost years, um, relying on the um, donations of volunteers crossing the river and from throughout the country, as well as uh, nonprofit organizations coming from uh, Mexico and the United States to help them. You've reported that more than a thousand people are at the Matamoros encampment. How did the Biden administration decide who to prioritize for entry? right now yeah current, the yeah current estimates are about 1200 people in the camp right now but the united nations which is actually the one that is sorting the people estimates that only about 750 people will actually cross they have to meet certain qualifications mm. they have to have a current u.s immigration case uh, immigration case filed they cannot have been de deported or expelled previously they cannot have tried to enter since they filed their case and been sent back. Um, and uh, mostly they were uh, picking families with children, um, elderly. There was uh, 27 people released in the first batch on Thursday. The last gentleman to get off the bus actually had crutches. He had an injured foot. I don't know what the situation is, what the cause of that injury um, was, but I've been in the camp and I've seen wheelchairs. I spoke to a family that had a child who was hearing impaired. Uh, several children were unable to see um, several LGBTQ families that um, they were trying to get out, people with special circumstances first. Wow. And they were trying to come into the U.S. because why? What kinds of asylum claims were they making? What had they experienced in their home countries? Many claim that gangs were recruiting um, their children, uh, their husbands, their wives, um, forcing them um, into criminal activity, uh, killing family members, very poor economies. These are primarily from the Central American countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, but there are some Mexicans that were living in the tent encampment. And they are not eligible under, uh, they're not supposed to be part of the MPP program. MPP program was not to include Mexicans. They were, they were barred under the metering system under the Trump administration. And so a big question becomes, what will happen 
to those 400 or so remaining people who are not allowed to cross what will happen to them at the camp. Do you have any sense or any insight into what might happen? Um, actually, this morning I interviewed a, a gentleman from Doctors Without Borders, which is on the ground currently helping to sort the people. Um, and they're extremely concerned because um, this is the largest refugee camp on a U.S. border, period. But when it is um, dissolved, it will become like many of these shanty towns that are popping up in other border cities like Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, Piedras Negras, Ciudad Acuña. Um, and in many respects, the people are much more vulnerable when they're in smaller numbers. Um, the drug cartel has really does have full car, uh, control of Tamaulipas, which is the northern Mexican border state that these cities are in. And, um, but these people who have lived at the camp have felt strength in numbers. Uh, I was at the camp in December, December 22nd, 2019, when Dr. Jill Biden came and with a contingency of about uh, 15 uh, congressional lawmakers, there were about 3000 people in the camp at that time, but they grew frustrated and many went back to their uh, home countries or to the interior of Mexico after waiting for so many months. So the camp numbers really dwindled. Um, but still, there are a good 800 that I believe qualify. But when they are brought over, which is happening very rapidly, they're, they're bringing now upwards of 100 per day through South wow. Texas. Um, those remaining people are, are going to be, quote, as this uh, doctor, uh, this uh, worker from Doctors Without Borders told me today, they're going to be preyed upon. We're talking with Sandra Sanchez, South Texas correspondent for Border Report. I mean, that is very disturbing um, scene and, and circumstances that you are describing for us. And what it also sounds like you're describing is that the conditions were so bad that a lot of people ended up giving up or dropping their asylum claims. Do you have any sense of the number of people who may have done that because of the conditions? Um, I just know that from 3,000, we went down to right before the election, there was only about 600 people in the camp. Mm. Many of them made their way back rapidly uh, as they found out that it looked like Joe Biden was going to win. And um, and they got back into the camp. I don't know how, because they all were supposed to have identification bracelets, but um, they got back in the camp and, and they proceeded to wait for the, these past few months. But certainly a great majority of them left. Um, I'm now... We have several other border cities which are affected. And it's interesting because it may be Central Americans in Matamoros, but what we're seeing in Reynosa is an increasing number of Haitians and Africans who are waiting there, as well as in um, across from Del Rio, Texas, uh, there are a whole bunch of Haitians and Africans as well. Uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar, he's uh, Vice Chairman of the House Appropriations Subcommittee for Homeland Security. So basically, he's in charge of the money for Homeland Security, has said that the drug cartel pick where they want people to wait. And they have determined that the Haitians will wait to the West and the Central Americans will wait to the Southeast. Um, it's, you know, he says they are in full control. Wow. For the people who are here, where are they going? What's next for their cases? 
Right. So they are released by Department of Homeland Security under what's called an NTA, a notice to appear. They promise to show up for any and all upcoming immigration court hearings wherever they find themselves. I spoke to people who were en route to Greeley, Colorado, Nashville, Tennessee, California, New Jersey, New York, Seattle, um, Wisconsin. They were going all through the interior. Most everyone was heading north of what we call the checkpoint in Falfurias, which is about 65 north, miles north of, of me. I'm in McAllen, Texas. Um, and that is really where the real border starts because you cannot cross north of that area without papers. And so everyone was, was getting out of here and going north. Um, anyone who is given this NTA, which is under ICE's deferred adjudication or alternatives to uh, detention program, who does not show up for a court case is subject to an immediate expulsion or deportation. So they know that going in. Mm. And I've also been told that many of the migrants will likely have ankle bracelets on them, although we're not seeing that just yet. And I suspect it's the optics of it, not just putting ankle bracelets on this first group that's getting so much media attention, but um, I'm sure we'll see that further down the line. And Sandra Sanchez, how many people will likely be approved? I understand there's an estimated 25,000 migrants in the um, MPP program who are eligible to apply, according to U.S. officials? Right. Uh, United Nations is offering an online portal um, with DHS and Mexican officials. And so they go onto the site and they apply. Um, you have to have what's called an A number. And it's an, it stands for alien identification number, which is how immigration courts track you. So I can't, for instance, go on there and try to go through the site because I don't have an A number. But there are numerous reports of the site crashing repeatedly. People have had a, a whole lot of trouble getting on to apply. So a number of NGOs uh, on the ground have been helping people. There are 67,000 people who were placed in MPP since 2019, but the UN is only estimating 25,000 will be able to apply for this. So there's a discrepancy in numbers. Hmm. Well, Sandra Sanchez, thank you so much for your reporting and for coming on today. Sandra Sanchez, South Texas correspondent for Border Report. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the Biden administration's overhaul of the nation's border policies. And we're joined now by Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. He also served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under President Obama. Tom K. Wong, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. So we just talked with Sandra Sanchez, South Texas correspondent at Border Report, who was describing the situation at the border and people being able to cross now that uh, the Biden administration is undoing that remain in Mexico policy. But can you describe how it came about in the first place and led to the situation that Sandra Sanchez described? What were the political forces? Yeah, I mean, I think the the one of the main stories that have emerged from the Trump administration's immigration policy is the sort of role of nativists um, like Stephen Miller in crafting U.S. immigration policies, including our border and asylum policies. There was a quote from Stephen Miller, immigration advisor to uh, then President Trump, that his sort of objective was to create these impossible dilemmas uh, when it came to our immigration system. And if one imagines somebody who is seeking protection from persecution in the United States and encountering these impossible dilemmas, then one can begin to understand the impact that the Remain in Mexico policy had. So back in 2019, the Remain in Mexico policy began as a Department of Homeland Security uh, memo uh, written by then uh, Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. The idea with the Remain in Mexico policy was for those individuals who were seeking protection from persecution, uh, that they would wait in Mexico before their immigration court date in the U.S. instead of being processed. Now, being processed is important because, for example, at the southern border, if an asylum seeker requests asylum, then previously what would happen is that a trained USCIS asylum officer would go down and administer what's called the credible fear interview. The idea of the credible fear interview is to assess whether or not the individual had a likelihood of receiving asylum in the U.S. based on his or her migratory uh, experiences and circumstances. The Remain of Mexico policy did away with that. So instead of an individual having his or her story heard and potentially being admitted into the U.S. to wait out uh, the time in between their immigration court date, uh, Remain of Mexico basically said carte blanche, anybody requesting asylum will receive a notice to appear, which was mentioned in the previous segment, but that notice to appear did not come with admission into the U.S. It simply was a piece of paper uh, that an asylum seeker received that uh, they had to hold on to while in Mexico as they awaited their immigration court date. Clearly, I don't know if it was Trump officials, but generally there was this impression circulating that some percentage of asylum seekers who were admitted into the country would not show up for their hearings, disappear into the country, and so on. How big a problem is that in reality? <laughs> um, I, I laugh because the last four years when it came, you know, with respect to immigration policy was really a fight about facts. And uh, now, hopefully, we are transitioning back into a period where, where facts matter. So when we look at data from the Department of Justice and even from the Trump administration's Department of Justice, 
uh, when it comes to those notice to appears and individuals actually uh, coming to their immigration court date. Then previously, there was a program called the Family Case Management Program, where a asylum seeker or an asylum seeking family would receive an alternatives to detention program. Uh, this would involve, for example, nonprofit organizations, finding immigration attorneys uh, to help the asylum seeker or the asylum seeking family navigate the court process. There was near 100% compliance under the family case management program. Hmm. And this didn't even include things like ankle monitors or other kinds of uh, coercive monitoring. Uh, now the percentage is over 90% for all other asylum seekers or asylum seeking families. And that number increases when an individual or family has legal representation. And so part of the genesis for the Remain in Mexico policy was the Trump administration saying that if an asylum seeker is paroled into the U.S., they essentially go into the wind, that they do not show up to their immigration court dates. And that is simply not true uh, based on the Department of Justice and, again, the Trump Department of Justice's own data. We're talking with Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. And you can join the conversation with your questions. We're talking about the Biden administration's overhaul of the nation's border policies this hour. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We were hearing Sandra Sanchez talking about the number of people who uh, were initially at the camp, potentially 3,000 or so, some who gave up their asylum claims or for other reasons ended up leaving. Was this an effort, this this Remain in Mexico policy, part of a broader effort by the Trump administration to deter people from coming to the United States? And if that's the case, was it effective? Without a doubt, uh, much of the Trump administration's immigration policies were intended to deter. Um, when we think about deterrence, however, there is a now two decades long academic literature that shows that policies intended to deter, especially deter motivated migrants like asylum seekers fleeing persecution, well, they don't actually deter, they simply displace. So when we think about displacement, this means displacement to different uh, entry routes. So one can imagine an asylum seeker requesting asylum at the San Ysidro port of entry in San Diego, uh, being pushed back and finding another way into the US uh, through an unauthorized entry route. Uh, with displacement, we also see the incentivize, incentivization of human smugglers. So individuals who uh, are pushed back then are more incentivized to find professionals, uh, coyotes who can uh, help them enter the US. So the displacement actually increases the likelihood of successful entry into the US. So whether or not Remain in Mexico was successful, we don't yet know because out of the 70,000 or so uh, individuals who are enrolled in the Remain in Mexico policy. We know that there are 25,000, an estimated 25,000 
that are uh, still pending their immigration court date. Now, I have to imagine that some in the remainder, so roughly 50,000 or so, were um, uh, deterred and went back to Central America or uh, simply started over elsewhere in Mexico. But uh, if the two decades old academic literature that I just referenced is correct, then the majority of those individuals will have found an alternative way to enter the U.S. Because again, of policies intended to deter don't often deter, but simply displace. We're joined now by Miriam Jordan, national immigration correspondent for the New York Times. Miriam Jordan, appreciate having you on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So while President Biden is trying to undo Trump's remain in Mexico policy, he is keeping Trump's public health rule that requires border border agents basically to deport people uh, crossing from Mexico without a chance to request asylum. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's drawing criticism from especially advocates for immigrants? Right, that's correct. So um, the the Biden administration, um, you know, has decided to keep in place the um, the, the emergency health policy um, while it puts its cards in order. Um, again, I, it, it fully um, understands that if there is a surge of people trying to enter the United States, it will be difficult for it to manage the flows. So it um, it, it, it seems to make sense um, to keep the policy in place. However, advocates are angry because they regard it as a pretext to prevent um, legitimate asylum seekers from entering the United States and subjecting them to the dangers of being stranded on the Mexican side of the border. You say uh, the administration needs to put its cards in order. Are you saying in part that they are also invoking this because they have not ramped up capacity yet? Uh, to handle the numbers of people who are coming at the border? And if not, why not? Well, um, as um, as the um, new secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, um, said yesterday at the White House, um, you know, the Trump administration did dismantle, he said, gut, um, the infrastructure that was in place. I mean, and that means huh. um, personnel, um, that means, you know, uh, capacity, that means brick and mortar to um, handle influx. So this administration has been, you know, in office, what, a little over a month. So it's barely had time to really ramp up, um, you know, as you said, um, and um, prepare to receive large numbers of people who are seeking entry. So then I guess... They, while they are uh, turning away adults mainly, they're not turning away minors. Is that the case? Um, that is correct. The Biden administration has decided that it will allow um, unaccompanied minors to um, enter the United States seeking protection. And um, it continues to turn back um, most families and single adults trying to enter the country. 
And this decision, as we know, has led to a very large increase in the number of unaccompanied minors who are typically teenagers um, being encountered by the Border Patrol. Typ- uh, typically teenagers, but you also report that there are some kids as young as six. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I sought some clarity or detail on that, and it was as much as they could tell me. I don't know what proportion are that young, but they, but there are many who cross as siblings, and these pairs would typically have, you know, an older teenager and then, you know, um, another child who could be, yes, as young as five or six, I've been told. You you say that potentially uh, in your reporting that these numbers in the coming months could break records set in May of 2019 when 11,000 uh, unaccompanied minors were basically encountered by, by Customs and Border Protection. So I, I'm curious, what is... What is the administration doing with these num- these numbers of children, especially as you're saying, since there hasn't been a lot of time to ramp up capacity? Right. So we've been seeing these unaccompanied minors um, intercepted at the rate of 400 a day of late, which means we could see, you know, um, the numbers rise to the numbers you, you know, you mentioned in 2019, um, more than 11,000. And in that fiscal year, there were more than 76,000 who were um, intercepted um, all told. Um, the push factors are so tremendous now, right? Violence persists Um, In Central America, we've had two hurricanes batter Honduras and Guatemala. Land there is less productive because of climate change. And so we have these miners arriving and um, allowed in, we're quarantining them at, you know, in shelters for about 10 days along the border. And um, once they've passed two COVID test, they can be released to relatives in the interior of the country. But that doesn't always happen quickly, which is, you know, goes back to your question about, you know, ramping up infrastructure. Um, You know, there aren't enough beds available to accommodate um, the number of children arriving, especially if there's a backlog because they have to remain in quarantine. So it really presents a, a very tricky situation for this administration. What are the options for the administration here uh, besides putting them in these centers, besides having them be in quarantine? Well, I think what advocates would say is that many of these um, you know, minors arrive with the name and telephone number of a family member in the United States who they know will take them in and who eventually would be allowed to take a child in. But there's a vetting procedure in place to prevent trafficking of these children. And some advocates believe that perhaps um, it would be healthier for the kids to let them more quickly be released to these family members who they know will receive them rather than go through this long red tape that could keep them in the custody of the U.S. government for weeks or even months. 
Uh, Miriam Jordan, I know you need to leave us a little bit sooner than you had anticipated, so I do want to ask you about the status of family reunifications. In his remarks yesterday, where uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorgas described what was happening at the border, he also said that uh, that the administration was seeking to reunite migrant children uh, who still have not been uh, with their parents to reunite them in the United States. Can you talk about why that's significant? Right, um, this is important. It's one of the big asks of the advocates in the ACLU, which sued to reunify the families in court. It's the ability of these parents to legally re-enter the United States, um, not only to reunite with their children, but also to revive their immigration or asylum cases in court. Um, this means that they could eventually be allowed to remain in this country permanently. And there are many advocates who believe that this country owes um, these families reparations for all the harm inflicted. Um, and that the least we can do is to allow them to re-enter this country and to make their case in court um, and to ultimately be allowed to live here. Um, whether they would be eligible for citizenship, that's another question. Hmm. But um, the Trump administration was not amenable to allowing large numbers of parents who might have been deported without their children back into the country. Only um, a handful um, entered. And before you go, Miriam Jordan, can you just tell us the status of how many children still have not, their parents have not been located? Right. So um, there are about 500 um, parents separated from their children, including some who were deported, not all, who haven't been contacted by the ACLU or the committee under the court case that has been um, empowered or tasked to locate them. Um, the main obstacle is that these families or the parents who were deported or back in, you know, Central America are dispersed in remote highland villages of yes. Guatemala, for instance. So this, um, and there's not necessarily cell phone service. Um, it's, and, you know. Yes, it, it really is such, uh, such a difficult job. Miriam Jordan, National Immigration Correspondent for The New York Times. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Biden administration's overhaul of the nation's border policies and the early challenges it's facing as more migrants attempt crossings at the southern border. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. What questions do you have about how the Biden administration is reworking U.S. border policy? 
what are your questions for Tom K. Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. He also served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under President Obama. Let me go to caller Guillermo in Oakland. Hi, Guillermo. Hey, hi. Thank you for taking my phone call. So I am talking based on my own experience here. And the question that I have for your panelists is whether any administration, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, has been reviewed the policies for seeking asylum and political asylum in this country. I came through in the 80s uh, from El Salvador. It took me 20 years to get my political silence going through mm. with the evidence and plenty of evidence. And even with that, it was really hard to prove to the courts and to the judge and to everyone. And to one of my attorneys was ready to go to the Supreme Court to change the policy because the policies that we have in place are, has not been reviewed and it has been making it harder and harder and harder the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, every single administration has been making it harder and harder to prove whether you have a case or not. And then it took me another 10 years to get my citizenship. So, Guillermo, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I'm sorry for what you have been through and also for what happened to you to lead you to need to seek asylum in the United States. I appreciate what you shared and also your question, Tom K. Wong. Are we going to see real substantive improvement in the processing of asylum claims under Biden? Yeah, thank you to the listener for the question. Um, the U.S. has transposed the definition of a refugee from the Geneva Convention on the Status of Refugees. So when we think about an individual making asylum request, we are saying yes or no based on whether or not the individual has a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, membership in a political, or sorry, membership in a social group or political opinion. And uh, it sounds like from the listener, uh, political persecution was the basis for uh, his asylum requests. Um, I think what listeners may want to think about are how immigration judges are not independent of the Department of Justice. Uh, they are essentially employees of the Attorney General. During the Trump administration, that made a huge deal because that allowed uh, several essentially political appointees to make these sometimes life or death decisions when saying yes or no to asylum requests. And so having an independent uh, system of immigration judges, uh, much like in the criminal justice system, even though there are many issues there, uh, but independence from political processes and pressures um, is, 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 is what will be uh, incredibly important. I think as a matter of policy, the idea of proving well-founded fear uh, is something that has uh, sort of since the Refugee Convention been an issue. Uh, but this is where the haves versus have-nots come into play when it comes to uh, having a immigration attorney. Because a good immigration attorney is going to essentially 
create a file that shows not just the individual circumstances, but also broader country level conditions that make very vivid that the individual indeed has a well-founded fear of persecution. And sometimes these cases get really, really personal, especially when things like uh, physical trauma or rape are involved. So I think at the end of the day, the definition that we have of a refugee, which is consistent with international law, creates space for interpretation for who is and who is not able to receive asylum. Because that is true, we need an independent judiciary, in effect, uh, for our immigration system so that immigration judges don't serve at the whims of um, you know, politicians, whether it be an elected attorney general, or sorry, appointed attorney general or an elected president. It sounds like you're tempering expectations then, Tom K. Wong, for any significant change under Biden, at least quickly. I, I think that the, the changes that we want to see and imagine will eventually happen, but the steps toward uh, those broader changes begin with things like uh, reworking our immigration court system, mm-hmm. how we appoint immigration judges, how we think about the independence of those immigration judges. Um, but I, I do have some optimism that we will see some broad structural change because one of the Biden executive orders actually uh, mentioned for the first time that I'm aware of in our country's history, a uh, space for climate-induced displaced sorry, climate-induced mm. displacement um, as warranting asylum in the United States. And so we, if we, for example, provide uh, an allocation of refugee resettlement slots for climate refugees, we will be progressive in a way as a country that hopefully sets the tone for the rest of the world that the existing definition of a refugee is actually insufficient given the many new reasons why individuals across the world are forced to flee their countries. Let me go to caller Caleb next in San Jose. Hi, Caleb. Hello, how are you? I'm well. What's on your mind? Um, I was just curious that um, in regards to the overall strategy and expanding um, border patrol capability to manage a larger influx of migrants and asylum seekers. Is there any focus being paid on ensuring um, the stories that I've heard of abuse and other horror stories of people detained in ICE facilities? Is there any uh, attention being paid to ensure that that doesn't spread into these added capabilities? Caleb, thanks. And of course, Tom K. Wong, that is something that we are hearing because some of the detention centers that are being reopened did not have good reputations under Trump. Oh, absolutely. Maybe even under Obama. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I I was just about to say they didn't have good reputations uh, under the Obama administration either. Um, I think this is an incredibly important question. So going back to the previous conversation with Miriam Jordan, who I respect greatly, I think the language that we use to describe the numbers at the southern border, whether it be influx or surge or wave, I think we, uh, as a sort of uh, the royal we, uh, needs to do a better job of contextualizing the numbers. So when we think about apprehensions at the southern border, whether they be unaccompanied minors or family units, 
uh, or other individuals, uh, we often compare month over month. So we're comparing, you know, February to January and January to December. But I want to sort of make the point here, um, and hopefully others um, can amplify this point. The numbers that we see at the southern border tend to be seasonal. And so when we think about seasonal patterns of migration to the United States, the most appropriate comparisons are actually the sort of similar month, or sorry, the same month in the previous year, if not years. And so when we think about the numbers for unaccompanied minors, for example, uh, January 2021 was 5,707 apprehended at the southern border. In January 2019, it was 5,105. So that may not be a surge or an influx or a wave if we're able to contextualize the data like that. And in terms of family units, in January of this year, it was 7,260. In January 2019, it was 24,188. And so what we currently see at the border is an uptick. But uh, as Ali Mayorkas, uh, DHS secretary, said yesterday, the numbers don't necessarily warrant um, uh, sort of a, a crisis response. So that segues into the detention centers. So when we think about the reputation of those ICE or CBP detention centers during the Trump administration, uh, some of the work that I did in interviewing asylum seekers really made vivid, and the work of journalists as well, uh, substandard conditions as well as treatment. So from spoiled food to uh, cold food to not enough food to physical abuse as well as verbal abuse. Um, that is part of the Trump legacy on uh, immigration enforcement. And it is also, uh, to a lesser degree, part of the Obama legacy on immigration enforcement. Because in 2014, we saw an increase in unaccompanied minors coming to the U.S. And it overwhelmed the existing capacity at the time. So instead of being able to essentially case manage uh, each unaccompanied minor, uh, most unaccompanied minors were placed in detention facilities. I think the experience of 2014 is giving this current administration, as well as those individuals working uh, on southern border issues, a template for the roads not to go down again. Hmm. Um, last week, we already saw the blowback when the Biden administration reopened one of the sort of family residential centers. So that is just a um, sort of sanitized way to talk about a detention facility for minors and, un un and unaccompanied children. Um, but one of the main differences though, is that this administration is thinking more about case management for these individuals rather than detention. Uh, so there's a big uh, shift, uh, uh, you know, aided in part by advocacy to essentially move from a um, sort of system where immigration enforcement is about punishment and move to one where we're trying to help ensure compliance with the rules. And that, that shift is, is, is an incredibly important one from the last administration to this one. And so even though we still may see uh, facilities open up to house unaccompanied minors and families who are coming to the US, the idea there will be less about detention as punishment and more about temporary holding, if I'm correct, 
It'll be more about temporary holding for the purposes of case management. And so I hope, I hope, I hope to the core of my heart that we won't see the reports of uh, mistreatment and substandard conditions like we did with the previous administration. And again, Tom K. Wong served as an advisor to the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under President Obama, is Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me thank Caleb for that call and go to Ali in Berkeley. Hi, Ali. Good morning. Good morning. What would you like to say? Well, what I want to say is that during the Trump administration, we saw a lot of these people coming to the U.S. And then what they did, um, they they said, we're going to cut off the regular funding that we give to these countries every year. And, and I think that was a stupid move because most of these people are coming for a financial situation. Mm-hmm. So what they should have actually done is just tell them, hey, we're going to give you the regular funding and we're going to give you more funding so you can create more jobs in your country. So it would be less desire for these people to move out. And I think that was a stupid. They did the other way. They cut off the regular funding. So right now the situation in these countries, even, it's probably even worse. Ali, thanks. Tom Wong, when we had you on just a few weeks ago to talk actually about the uh, immigration policies for undocumented immigrants currently living in the United States, we did talk a little bit about how in some of the executive orders there was a commitment to new funds, I believe international development funds, to stricken countries. It sounds like Ali is saying that the Trump decision to cut off a lot of that was, in his words, stupid. How efficient and promising is this as an avenue to try to reduce what Miriam Jordan coined as the push factors? Yeah, and and thanks to the listener for the comments. I think that there is a very large community um, of academics at the intersection of immigration and development that sees foreign aid as a way to address push factors. So if we imagine the reasons why people leaving are in part due to economic circumstances, then improving conditions, so home country conditions, uh, when it comes to one's economic prospects, then just stands to reason as being a potential, uh, not entire solution, but part of a solution um, to the push factors, the reasons why people consider leaving in the first place. I think what the Trump administration did more specifically was try to redirect development aid toward enforcement. And that's something that the Obama administration did as well, uh, you know, leaning on Mexico in particular to increase enforcement at its southern border. Uh, What we have essentially witnessed in that general strategy uh, isn't a stemming of the flows of migrants from Central America to the United States. Instead, what we've seen are more human rights abuses. So mm-hmm. if one imagines uh, those images of the quote-unquote caravans coming through Central America, uh, through Mexico to the U.S., then when Tucker Carlson and you know those folks uh, show images uh, It's usually trying to plant the seed of the southern U.S. border uh, that these individuals are approaching. But many of those images are actually of those individuals approaching 
the southern Mexico border. And the Mexican government um, has, has a lot of reckoning to do itself in terms of how it has tried to essentially keep development dollars by increasing enforcement, uh, for example, by detaining uh, Central Americans rather than allowing them to transit and or fulfill international legal, legal obligations by uh, allowing them to request asylum in Mexico. So I think the caller is 100% right that uh, the development migration nexus is one that can potentially address push factors. And hopefully we see this administration uh, do more in that vein. But as I mentioned last time, the commitment of monies is currently too small to imagine being able to improve economic circumstances such that an individual considering whether or not to go or stay mm-hmm. decides to stay. We literally have less than a minute, but Lori asks, can we expect changes to ICE agent training and retention? When I think of the normalization of taking children from parents during the Trump administration, I think of the need for wholesale workforce changes. Answer, Lori, but also in addition to that, I just want to get your final thought on what you think needs to happen to do right by these families who experienced such trauma. Oh, wow. So um, on on the caller's uh, question, I think there is a real concern that the same sentiments uh, that drove individuals to attack our capital on January 6th are pervasive across DHS component agencies, including ICE and Customs and Border Protection. So uh, the new DHS secretary has a lot of work to do in terms of identifying and weeding out those individuals. And in order to do right by those asylum seekers who we have asked to remain in Mexico, actually forced to remain in Mexico, the minimum that we can do is provide due process so that those who have legitimate claims to seeking protection from persecution can find an audience in the United States. Tom K. Wong of UC San Diego, thank you. Thank you to Susan Britton for producing today's segment and to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.